Let's look at Psalm 120 this afternoon. Let's read it first. A song of ascents. In my distress I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior, with coals of the broom tree. Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when, they, when I speak, they are for war. This is, uh, of course, the first of the Songs of Ascents. There are 15 of those songs, Psalm 120 to 134, and it seems likely that this is a collection of psalms written perhaps over a somewhat lengthy period of time, but collected together here uh, in the Psalter. And... uh, Uh, according to um, most modern interpreters anyway, collected together as psalms that are particularly appropriate to be sung on the way to Jerusalem as the uh, people of God were making their way to the city of Jerusalem for one of the three annual feast days. Whether that is actually true or not is uh, probably impossible to determine, but certainly we can say that The first three of these psalms seem to fit that model very well. In Psalm 120, we have a psalm of distress and trouble because the psalmist is cut off from the house of God and cannot make his way there. In Psalm 121, it's not difficult to imagine that the psalmist is on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate one of these feasts. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And in Psalm 122, we see the pilgrims in the city itself. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. We're going to consider Psalm 120 under the theme, Crying to the Lord from Meshach and Kedar. And of course, the first thing we have to do is talk about those two places, Meshach and Kedar. What are they and what is the significance of those places in this psalm? And the second thing then we want to look at is the solution to the psalmist's problem here, his being cut off from the house of God and dwelling in Meshach and the tents of Kedar. Meshach first then, Meshach was a son of Japheth the son of Noah. You can find that in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2. Genesis chapter 10, verse 2. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. So he was one of the sons of Japheth. And he is mentioned actually, or his people are mentioned in a number of places in the prophecy of Ezekiel. We're not going to look at all of those places in the prophecy of Ezekiel, but there are two passages that 
I think are significant for us. The first is found in Ezekiel 27, verse 13. Ezekiel 27, verse 13. And we have here in this chapter in Ezekiel the prophecy of the Lord against Tyre, the city of Tyre, which was, of course, a major uh, trading city on the uh, coast of the Mediterranean Sea, about halfway between the north and the south. Uh, ends of that east coast. But in chapter 27, verse 13, then we read, Javan, Tubal, and Meshech were your traders. They bartered human lives and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. So uh, Tyre had uh, trading relationships with Meshech, and apparently Meshech uh, bartered especially in slaves and in bronze vessels. And then also in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 1, Ezekiel 39, verse 1, and 2 as well, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. So we learn there in Ezekiel 39 that Meshach was in the far north. And in fact, if you look at some of the commentators and so on, they will generally tell you, I think, that Meshach was probably in the northwest part, even perhaps the very farthest northwest part of what we know as Turkey today or as Asia Minor in an earlier time. So, uh, in the far north then, and God's here saying in Ezekiel 39 that uh, he will bring Meshach against the mountains of Israel. So that's Meshach. Then uh, Kedar is a son, or was a son of Ishmael, the son of Abraham. And you find that in Genesis 25, verse 13. Genesis 25, verse 13 gives us a list, or the beginning of the list of Ishmael's children. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebaioth, then Kedar, Abdiel, Mibsam, and the list goes on. Ishmael had a lot of sons. So he, uh, on the one hand, you have a son of Japheth, the son of Noah, and here you have a son of Ishmael, the son of Abraham. He too, or his people, are mentioned in several places in the prophecies. Uh, One interesting occurrence, actually, is in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 5. We can turn there for just a moment. It's not particularly significant for our study, I think, but it is uh, nevertheless an interesting reference to this Kedar. The Shulamite is talking about herself, and she says, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. But uh, the people of Kedar are mentioned in Isaiah, a couple of places, in Jeremiah, a couple of places there, 
and in Ezekiel, one place there. And we're interested particularly in Isaiah 21, verses 16 and 17, with regard to Kedar, Isaiah 21, verses 16 and 17. Now, if you go to the paragraph marker here in Isaiah 21, which is at verse 13, you'll see that this is the burden of the word of the Lord against Arabia. And then in verse 16, for thus the Lord has said to me within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fall. And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished, for the Lord uh, God of Israel has spoken it. So Kedar was in Arabia, that's to the south of Israel. So you have a place to the far north and a place to the south. And you can probably think of these two places as kind of representing to Israel the limits of her world. Far north and the far south. So when the psalmist says... Here, I sojourn, and by the way, the word there is sojourn, not dwell, in that first line, when he says he sojourns in Meshach, and he dwells in the tents of Kedar, he's talking about two places that are very far removed from each other. And it's likely, therefore, that he doesn't mean us to take this literally, that he's speaking metaphorically, and that what he means by calling attention to these two distant places is that he is very far from either physically or uh, because of the circumstances of his life, he's very far from the people of God, from the city of Jerusalem and from the house of God. He may not be physically that far away, but circumstances at least are preventing him from getting to the place where his people are and the place where God's house is. He's in the situation then of the psalmist in Psalm 42, where he complains of being far from God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remembered these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. And then in verse 6 as well, O my God, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. So that in Psalm 120, what we have to see is the psalmist being cut off from the companionship of his own people, cut off from the house of his God, cut off, therefore, from the worship of God, cut off from the place that represented the presence of God, among his people and longing for that place. This is a psalm which is a psalm of distress and a psalm of longing. But that's not the only problem that he has, of course. It's not just that he's at a distance from God, 
but that he dwells and sojourns among a hostile people. And he talks about that in verses 5 and 6. Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, or sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So he's among a strange people. He's a stranger, a sojourner among these people. And these people are not welcoming to him. These people are hostile to him. They hate him. And they make war with him. He is interested in peace. He wants peace with them. But they want nothing to do with peace. He speaks for peace. To them and with them. But when he speaks, they are for war. They will not accept overtures of peace from him then. They reject his overtures of peace. And instead they make war on him. They are hostile to him. They hate him. They don't want him to find a place among them. They want to destroy him or to drive him away. Or to make his life as miserable as possible while he dwells among them. And they express their hatred with their wicked tongues. As he makes very clear in verse 2. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. So they attack him with their tongues. They attack him to his face, falsely accusing him, perhaps. Or they attack him to his face with verbal abuse calling him a stranger, calling him weird, calling him unacceptable, calling him scum of the earth, whatever their names for him might be, but abusing him and uh, accusing him falsely. And they attack him also to his neighbors. They don't want him to be at peace with any of his neighbors either. And so they stir up his neighbors against him by false accusations and by all kinds of lies and slanders and gossip and so on about him. They, their lips are lying lips and their tongues are deceitful tongues. They want war with him. And they don't want peace. And of course what we're to understand from all of this is that this psalm then represents the Christian's life in the world. That's what this psalm is all about. Our life in the world. In the first place, of course, uh, we may point out the fact that we are sojourners here in the earth. We are not in our native country, in our fatherland, or in our own home. We are far from our home, far from that better country which we seek. And we are pilgrims and strangers here. And this means, of course, for us that we are always longing for that better country, always seeking that 
place which we call home, recognizing that we are strangers here and that we don't really fit in here, that we don't really belong here. And we, we look for the native country to which our God has called us, the heavenly country. And we have a, a great longing and a great passion while we are here in the world for that native country. The psalmist talks about this, of course, in Psalm 16, when he celebrates the blessedness of the inheritance that God has prepared for him. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance, but he's he's looking also to the heavenly country as he makes clear in the last couple of verses. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We long for the right hand of our God. So that's the one thing. But we may relate this also, of course, to the uh, people of God themselves in the world. This was the situation of the psalmist in Psalm 42. He was cut off from the house of God, from the company of God's people, and sometimes here through unavoidable circumstances, we are cut off from the company of God's people, which represents to us, of course, that better country while we are here on earth the company of those who are excellent in the earth and in whom we delight. We're cut off from that. In fact, it may be that even between Sundays, we begin to feel this great longing for the house of God and for the people of God and cry with passion to God, Come, let me go into your house. So that's one aspect of our life in the world. We're cut off from the house of God, cut off from the fellowship of God and of his people. But also, of course, this psalm represents the hostility of the world towards us. We live in a world that is hostile to us. We sojourn in Meshach. We dwell in the tents of Kedar among the unbelieving, and the unbelieving do not love us. And while we dwell among them, we are for peace, of course. We are for that peace which begins with reconciliation to God, that peace which Christ promised to his people before he went to heaven. My peace I leave with you. That peace is the peace that we seek and that we uh, proclaim also as we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel of the peace of God. We are for peace in that way. We are for peace also with the world insofar as that is possible. We witness to the world that gospel of peace. We bring that gospel of peace to the world in order that the world may hear the message of peace. And we pray that men will respond to that message of peace by seeking peace with God. We express that desire for peace with our love for our enemies. We pray for them. We bless them. We do good to them. 
As Jesus commands us, we are seeking peace with them through these means. We pray for the peace of the land in which we dwell. We are for peace. Not peace of any kind and not peace on any terms, but the peace of God that passes understanding. And that peace which begins with reconciliation to God and it includes, of course, reconciliation with God's people and as much as possible with other men as well. But the world in which we live is not for peace. And that's, a, that's generally true in the world. If you think of peace in scriptural or biblical terms, the, the world is not for peace. It's not for living with the God of peace. It hates God. It does not want peace with God. It does not want peace on God's terms. It does not want that life and joy and blessedness which go with that peace of God. It does not want righteousness, which is the means to that peace with God. The world loves death. The world loves the instruments of death. The world loves the wars that lead to death. They talk piously about peace, of course, But they do not want a peace that begins with reconciliation with God and that means loving their neighbor as themselves. They want a peace that leaves them in a position of superiority to their neighbor. They want a peace that is on their terms, not on God's terms. They want a peace that will allow them to do whatever they please live in sin and really therefore they love war when I speak they are for war they are always attacking righteousness attacking God seeking out new frontiers of wickedness to conquer rather than seeking out righteousness that's in a general sense But this world then is also hostile particularly to us, to the people of God, to those who represent the peace of God and pray for the peace of God and proclaim the peace of God to them. When I speak, they are for war. They attack. They destroy. They make life miserable. They seek to drive the people of God away rather than receive them as part of themselves. And, of course, this comes out especially in their words. They have nothing good to say about those who are for peace, for the peace of God. They accuse them, they abuse them, They destroy their reputations. They make their lives uncomfortable here in the world. They want them to know that they are indeed strangers, not accepted in the world. So this psalm is one that should be very real to us, people of God. We should feel ourselves um, as in the situation of the psalmist. And we should very easily be able to say, woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach, and I dwell 
among the tents of Kedar. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Now, I've said already that this psalm is a psalm of trouble and a psalm of longing. It is very much that. It doesn't mean that the psalmist does not know the answer to his problem, to this problem of a lack of peace with the world in which he lives. He does know the answer, and the answer is found here in the psalm. He begins the psalm with calling on the Lord. In my distress, I cried to the Lord. That's the first part of the answer, of course. In our distress, we cry to the Lord. And we cry to him, using the words of verse 2, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. We also address our enemies as the psalmist does in verses 3 and 4. What shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, false tongue? So the psalmist speaks to his enemies, and he says to his enemies, what will be done to you? How is this going to end? What's going to come to you for the lying and deceit which you practice, you false tongue? And he has an answer immediately ready for that question. What shall be done to you, sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree? That's his answer to his own question, what shall be done to you? And this is his word to that false tongue. Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. Now there are uh, several things I think that we should notice about that answer. In the first place, the word warrior here could also be translated as mighty one. Sharp arrows of the mighty one. And I point that out people of God, because that term, mighty one, is a name in the Psalms and in other parts of the scriptures as well for the Lord himself. You find it, for example, in Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, the psalmist begins by asking who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place. And then in verses 8 and 7 and following, he sees coming to ascend into the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place, the king. And he says, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. That's one place then where that uh, is used of the Lord. That name is given to him. Psalm 45 is another one. Verse 3. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. 
And Psalm 89, verse 19, again. Psalm 89, verse 19. This is a psalm where the Lord is reviewing uh, or repeating his promises to David. And he says in verse 19, Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. So in those three psalms and in other places as well, this is a name that's applied to the Lord. And in those three psalms, this is our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? The mighty king who comes in Psalm 24 to ascend the hill of Zion is our Lord Jesus Christ ascending into the heavenly places. In Psalm 45, that mighty one who goes out against the enemies of God is our Lord Jesus Christ, as Hebrews chapter 1 teaches us. In Psalm 81, the one on whom the Lord lays help is David, not the first David, but the second and greater David. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the King appointed by God to come to the help of his people. This is then our Lord Jesus Christ coming, but coming here in judgment, coming with his arrows and with his coals of the broom tree. Those two things are also in the Psalms as well as in other parts of the Scriptures metaphors for the judgment of God. For uh, coals, or for arrows rather, let's look at just a couple of places. There's a number of places we could go to, but let's begin with Psalm 7 verse 13. This is talking about God as the just judge. Verse 11, God is a just judge. God is angry with the wicked every day. And then verse 13, he also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. That's his judgment, of course. And for the coals, Psalm 18, verses 12 and 13. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And notice there in both the, in that psalm that the hailstones and coals of fire are his voice. Or the other way, his voice is the hailstones and the coals of fire. And we may say the same thing about the sharp arrows in Psalm 64. Psalm 64, David is complaining about his enemies who sharpen their tongues like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words, notice that, they shoot their arrows, which are bitter words, against the blameless. And then he says in verse 7, But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. God will speak his own word against them. His own arrows will be shot against these wicked men. So it's his word of judgment that he's talking about here in Psalm 120. And his emphasis is especially on the effectiveness of that judgment of God. His arrows are sharp. They are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. Psalm 45, verse 5, I think it is. And his coals are hot and long-lasting. Apparently, 
The coals of the broom tree are particularly hot and long-lasting coals. So they're effective words of judgment. His words of judgment are not just uh, words, words of wishing or words of anger, but they are effective words, words of power, words that bring judgment in themselves. And so these are men who say, our tongues are our own. Who is Lord over us? And the answer is, the Lord hears the cries of the needy, and he is coming with judgment. Effective judgment. But now notice, also in verse 1, that he says, Not only in my distress I cried to the Lord, but also, and he heard me, or better, and he answered me. The psalmist has received his answer from the Lord in his distress. And the answer of the Lord is not immediate deliverance. The answer of the Lord is not, okay, I'm here. Let me take you by the hand and lead you away from these enemies and back to your own place. But the answer of the Lord is his promise of judgment. As the psalmist sees it in verse 4, sharp arrows of the mighty one with coals of the broom tree. The Lord reminds him of the truth that he is coming for judgment on this world. And that that will be his deliverance. And so he says, wait. Do not lose heart. Do not be afraid. He is coming. He's coming with judgment. To judge the world in righteousness. Psalm 11 The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. May God bless us with his word.